All right. Today for our podcast, I'm talking to Chris Novak, and, and he is the CEO, president, president and CEO. Pres, okay, uh, of the Crop Life America Trade Association, which is basically the companies that provide agricultural technology for farmers. So just kind of wanted to talk about Chris, but but I I think one of the most interesting things is the diverse background that Chris has. And so can you describe some of the roles you've played over your career? Well, I, I will first start with, you know, the foundation before we build the rest of the okay. house. And, and that foundation is I, I grew up on, on a small Iowa farm. Okay. Uh, it was 120 acres that my grandfather bought and, and my dad uh, purchased from him. So we're, we're getting close to the century mark. But uh, my dad's off-farm job was uh, fertilizer and chemical uh, sales for okay. a, a regional cooperative in the, in the Midwest. So, Because uh, cooperatives are the way that a lot of that still is the case. That's how a lot of it works. Farmers right? are, are still accessing uh, their, their crop inputs, whether it's fertilizer or, or crop protection products. Right. But uh, yeah, I, I finished up at Iowa State University and, and uh, came to Washington, D.C. to do an internship. Well, what was your degree in? Uh, agriculture. Agriculture, okay. But public service and administration in agriculture, which was Whoa. a combination of okay. political science, sociology, and economics, and frankly, some of the best training uh, for the things that I do today that I ever could have could have asked for. It certainly does sound perfect. Yeah. And and so uh, worked on Capitol Hill for Chuck Grassley, uh, who's still there today, the current chair of the Senate Finance Committee. That's right. And, uh, you know, fresh out of college at age 22, working on Capitol Hill was quite uh, a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful experience. Uh, but uh, I spent some time with the senator. I joined the National Pork Producers Council and worked for five years, uh, both in Washington, D.C. as a lobbyist. Uh, and then managing environmental programs uh, back in the early 1990s when the pork industry was going through a significant change. And so a, a great opportunity uh, to see uh, how uh, that industry uh, was evolving at the time. Uh, back to, back yeah. to school for three years. Uh, I picked up a law degree from the University of Iowa. Oh. And, and uh, as I came out of school, uh, I joined the American Soybean Association in St. Louis as, okay. as uh, their number two executive. Um, three years with ASA, and then a move to Wilmington, Delaware, to work for Syngenta, so one of our nice. agribusness companies and one was of it, our CLA was members. Was that before it was called Syngenta? Was it still... Um, uh, I joined them about uh, six months, uh, seven months after the merger. Okay. So I okay. did join Syngenta, yes. Because and, it had been called something else before. Uh, it was, uh, they were Novartis and Zeneca. Uh, right, merged right, together. exactly. Right. Okay. And uh, so three years at Syngenta doing biotechnology communication. Uh, and, and in uh, the in the nineties, uh, this would have been uh, in the early two thousands. Uh, okay, and so uh, so in the uh, midst of the firestorm, in the midst of a firestorm, uh, and uh, at a point in time where the Council for Biotechnology Information uh, was formed by uh, a lot of my member companies uh, who also were in biotechnology. Right today, uh, Michael Stebbins, the executive director for the Council for Biotech Information, uh, sits in the Crop Life office uh, about uh, thirty steps down the hall. So okay. uh, I, I, I again feel like I've come full circle uh, at many many points in my career. 
Uh, I, I uh, left Syngenta. Uh, they, they wanted to relocate uh, my family uh, and myself to Washington, D.C., and and I wasn't really interested in coming back to Washington uh, <laughs> in 2003. And so we packed up and moved to uh, Indiana, and I ran the uh, as executive director for the Indiana Corn and Soybean Organization, so okay. running two state uh, commodity organizations, actually four organizations. I had four boards. Uh, 70, 70 board positions uh, wow. across the, the four different entities. So uh, a, a great opportunity uh, to work with some, some wonderful people in Indiana. Well, so for me as a long-term ag person, what I hear from this narrative is that you broke out of the silos that are so common in the agricultural space because you've been involved in animal agriculture with pork, plant agriculture with lots of things. Right. You've been involved in biotech, you've been involved in chemicals. And these are all part of, of the suite of things that actually makes agriculture work. But you crossing those lines, that's kind of unusual, isn't it? So maybe from a career standpoint. Yeah, um, I'm thinking. And, and you know, two, two stops before I landed at CropLife with the National Pork Board and the National Corn Growers Association. but. But from an agriculture standpoint, and going back to that small farm in Iowa, yeah, um, how biotechnology has changed the way that our farm is operated today. Uh, how and do you still have ownership um, of that farm? Uh, my father is still and mother are still on the farm. Wow. Uh, they've got a tenant that uh, okay. uh, manages the ground. Uh, and well, because that's the way it's done. I mean. I, some huge percentage of agricultural land is rented right. from the families that yeah. originate. And, and I have a whole podcast about that. It's, I, uh, I say you can't buy the farm, but you can rent it, and, right. and that's a very logical thing to do, right? And, and Dad's Dad's eighty-five, so uh, you know that that day-to-day farm operation was something that no, he walked he, away he from. Does, a few, he doesn't need to be few, out there driving the tractor at eighty-five, right? But but to your point of breaking out of the silos, um, you know. Farms are about managing biological systems. Yes, uh, exactly. You know, plants need nutrition. They need fertilizer. And so... They need water. Uh, they need water. Um, and a little sun. Sun is good. Sun is always important. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, we didn't have a lot of that uh, early this early this spring. I think we're catching, making up for it now. But, um, you know, that opportunity to understand... Uh, plant nutrients and and you know how those nutrients interact and can be managed to provide what the plant needs and at the same time realizing that uh, as we may have nitrogen runoff from our farms that's money that the farmer has spent uh, that may yeah. be flowing downstream and, yeah, and there's, so, there's no incentive for the farmer to lose any that so, way. so you know finding ways to manage and improve nutrients on the farm same thing for pesticides finding ways to ensure that uh, we're killing the weeds, the insects, the fungal diseases that may threaten our crops, and at the same time that we're keeping uh, those uh, pesticides, uh, herbicides on the farm, uh, right. finding ways to, to minimize and reduce. All of that is about how we, we manage the farm system, and that's been the, the wonderful opportunity that I've been blessed with working in agribusiness companies, 
for farm organizations working in both crops and livestock, as, as well as starting with the foundation of how all of that comes together here in Washington, D.C. Well, because there's this narrative that has been put out that's sort of like, well, big companies, they don't care about the things that consumers care about. You've been interacting with all of these for all these years. I, what do you think about the actual people who are in these companies? Do they have sort of normal instincts about the environment and, and health? Uh, you know, not only do they have normal instincts about environment and health, um, you know, a lot of my members are publicly traded companies, and so they've got yeah, shareholders and and investor groups that are looking over their shoulder to say, what are you as a company doing uh, to be more sustainable, to be more environmentally friendly? Uh, my father-in-law passed away in 1998, but, uh, you know, he had a hog operation uh, for a number of years. Yeah. Um, I will say that he probably wasn't the best environmental manager. Okay. And so he was a small farmer. Uh, he cared about what he did. He, I know that he took care of his animals, but, right, but right. he was, he was uh, you know, keeping his animals in, in an old barn that was drafty. Uh, there were rodents around on the farm and, and it wasn't ideal from an environmental standpoint. And to the extent that as I worked in the pork industry and I worked with many of the large hog production companies and one of the individuals that I worked with specialized for that farm on nutrient management. That was his entire okay. day job was to develop the nutrient management plans that he could then put in place on the company owned farms and that he could help train any contract growers that they had operating. And so there is a perception that, that as you move from a small farm to a, a large farm or a corporate farm that right. you lose touch with that environmental reality. My experience is exactly the opposite. opposite. The, the bigger, the more, the more responsible they are to other people in a way. They're responsible to other people. They know that they're in the public eye and they also have additional dollars to invest yeah. in specializing. Right. They, they have resources. Like, exactly. Like I, I heard about a thing that Smithfield, which is like one of the biggest pork producers did, where they were helping their even small hog farmers that supplied them with um, lagoon cutters. Correct. Which not only is a nice thing in terms of smell for the neighbors, because, we're, okay, lagoon, we're talking the place manure, where the manure, manure goes. Manure, uh, manure storage. Uh, you, you can just imagine, just this whole bunch of pig poop. All right. right. And, and th th if they put covers over this, then not only do they block the smell, but they can actually capture the methane that comes out of that and turn that into carbon neutral energy. Exactly. I mean, and again, this is a big corporate pork company but they have the resources to do that to help the little right. pork producers and, and get greener. To the extent, I mean, I worked with hog farmers between 1992 and 95 who were beginning to install covers mm -hmm. and, and build digesters on their farm and oh, create electricity. Right. Digesters are, uh, yeah. And to the extent that, you know, that's almost 30 years ago now, and it is uh, growing some. Uh, as a tool and technology, but it's also something that's limited by you know the marketplace yeah. and and by policy because um, you know if a farmer um, 
as an example, I've, I've heard examples of farmers generating electricity and selling um, that electricity to the electric company for two cents a kilowatt hour. Whereas oh, that's really cheap. Whereas if you are buying that electricity from the power company, you're going to pay 15 or 16 cents a kilowatt hour. And so to the extent that that, you know, that's a part of the problem, if if uh, the opportunity for a farmer to generate energy on their farm yeah. uh, was greater, uh, we would see far more adoption of those types of technologies. You know, we're going to face the same issues with respect to uh, pesticide use. We're already seeing the adoption of variable rate technology. Right. Uh, we're seeing right. better use of And variable data. rate is basically like where they know where the pest is in the field. Exactly. Like with a weed or something and the, the, with technology that can image it or whatever they can say I'm only going to spray the herbicide where there's actually a weed right and the farmer has every incentive to do that because that means they buy less herbicide right that's right now it's also you know better for environmental impact but but I think that's really wonderful when there are cases where the environmentally right thing to do and the economic thing for the farmer align. And right. that's actually pretty common. It is very common. And and ultimately as well, if uh, we're not over applying our products, then we don't we don't allow nature to, to evolve <laughs> in the same way. Uh, you and I were talking about Charles Darwin earlier yeah. and, and to the extent that we know that that weeds and insects and diseases change and evolve, they in, evolve in nature. And so and, and these things can evolve a lot faster than humans that innovation. don't reproduce until you're well, at least twelve or thirteen years old. That's right. Right. You know if you have a fungus or a bacteria, their generation time can be weeks. And and so our time to develop new technologies uh yeah. 12 years over 350 million dollars to bring a new chemistry to market right and and yet we know that that you know insects weeds uh fungal diseases are are evolving at a far faster rate so how do we ensure that uh the products that we're using today are still going to be viable and useful for us five years from now ten years from now yeah and so while it may not necessarily make uh, sense to some people to say why would a chemical company want to sell less or see a farmer apply less at the same time if that prolongs the life the of life. that chemistry uh, then that's, that's something that's, you've invested the 350 million dollars in developing the last thing you want to do is see that become non-useful because of overuse of the chemical exactly right? exactly and and so uh you know obviously we have a need to continue to innovate as as nature continues to evolve um and you know that's why you know through this long journey of my career i'm truly thrilled to be here because i i know what a difference uh our companies i know what a difference pesticides make right. in in protecting life and health and the safety of our food and the sustainability of our food system. And it's a story that, you know, certainly isn't told often. Uh, most no. times when consumers hear pesticides. No, it's, uh, it's always something scary. Well, then, okay. It, it, it Hon is. Honestly, there are people who profit 
from selling scary stories there about are. pesticides. And there basically, are. that's what I call the organic industry. And I'm not talking to organic farmers because I know them. And actually, the vast majority of organic is produced by farmers who do both conventional right. and organic. Right. But there are certain large companies, mostly in the dairy side and some other things like that, that basically fund programs like the Environmental Working Group's Dirty Dozen List to scare people about pesticides. And, you know, <laughs> that's, that's not cool. I picked up a, a yogurt container a couple months ago that said, you know, help us deliver pesticide-free fields. And, you know, the irony to me is this is a company that's marketing an organic product, and yet there are or organic farmers have to use pesticides. pesticides. Uh, they have pests, too. It's not like they, they don't have pests. Exactly. And and so they're using, you know, pesticides that are on an approved list by USDA, but but... You know, an example uh, of a pesticide that uh, is used commonly, uh, particularly in Europe, copper sulfate. Right. Um, Which was the state of the art fungicide in 1878. We actually have a lot better things than that. And, and you know, it's a heavy metal. And so yeah. it can build up in the soil, in the soil. it yeah. can accumulate in, in animals, it, it, it creates its own set of health issues, and yet it's allowed uh, within. Because it's considered natural. but. Copper, that is something that you basically have to mine, doesn't naturally fly around and land on plants. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, and so, and there are, I, I, I don't want to see copper products go away completely because for certain bacterial diseases in particular, it's like one of the only things that works. Right. But... In most cases, there are far safer for people and for the environment, mostly for the environment. Although copper sulfate is way more toxic to animals than the vast majority of pesticides today. And I guess I, I, I need to say, I mean, our Crop Life America members, my pesticide, the pesticide companies that I represent, do sell approved organic pesticides to organic farmers. And so we certainly acknowledge uh, that there is a, a room and uh, an opportunity for uh, organic and conventional agriculture to coexist. But to your point, you know, those folks who say, you know, organic agriculture is better because it's pesticide free, that's a flat out lie. It is. And, and it that's is. unfortunate that they're using that as a tool and a tactic to scare consumers. And and so at the end of the day, how do we get back to what is the right tool, the right technology to use to control the weeds that can overtake right. a field in a very short period of time? And the insects and the diseases and and then we have a couple of other kinds of plant pests that we don't really have very good pesticides to deal with, viruses and bacteria. There are a few things that you can use for bacterial diseases. And fortunately, for humans, viruses and bacteria are our main pathogens, right. and, and we don't have very many fungus pathogens. I mean, you've got like toenails and candida, you know, a few things like that. Whereas for plants, 
fungi are the dominant cause of disease. Right. Yeah. And 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 that's where um, you know back on the Iowa farm again. Yeah. Uh, my father would would use a moldboard plow. And so in the fall when we harvested, he would go through the field and, and he would turn turn the soil over. Right. Uh, and so, you know, in the wintertime, you know, the, the black dirt of our Iowa farm was exposed to the wind and, and the rain and the other elements. Today, uh, our, our tenant uses biotechnology. He uses a no-till system. So when you drive by our fields in the fall, you just see the corn stalks. Uh, from the previous year's crop, right. uh, what's what's left on the farm after we've harvested the grain. Um, but we also, then in the spring, would use a disc. Uh, we would use something called a spring tooth and a harrow, which were, were I'll say, fine tillage instruments right. uh, to, to create a, a very soft seed bed for, for planting our crop. And then once, once uh, the crop was out of the ground, we would come through and we would use a cultivator uh, and we would plow out the weeds uh, that were there the between the rows. Um, and yet we still use pesticides as well. Now today, um, you know, our tenant is not cultivating. Um, he's not, he's that's, not that's breaking awesome. the soil up. Uh, again, the residue. Which, which has a huge, that allows that soil to be actually sequestering Carbon. Carbon. Exactly. I mean, it, not only is it the best thing for the soil health, for the growth of the crops, it's also basically a climate change and uh, mediation strategy. Right. And, and, you know, I can remember the large spring rains on our farm uh, mm. that would, and, and we had a rolling, rolling, uh, you know, hills and... Yeah. Uh, the, the creek, uh, the local creek, was about a half mile through our neighbor's field, and yet I can remember our waterways, you know, running heavy with soil. Uh, and today, um, you know, that runoff, uh, I, I can't say is gone, but certainly I know has changed dramatically because of the fact that yeah. when when the rain comes, it's not striking the soil; it's it's hitting the crop residue. Crop residue helps hold. We've built soil carbon, which also helps hold and trap water. Uh, all of those are environmental improvements that that I can look at and say have come about on our farm because of the tools and technologies that farmers have today. Right. I mean, the no-till movement started with the first useful chemical herbicides like 2,4-D in the the 40s, 50s, but it has been far more advanced since biotechnology and um, herbicide-tolerant plants. I can remember working with folks from the Rodale Institute, which yes. are huge proponents of, of organic agriculture. And uh, early in the 90s, uh, they were certainly promoting uh, minimum till, no till systems. They were promoting yes. uh, residues and cover crops. Um, today, all of those things have been adopted uh, by conventional farmers. Uh, right. We see it. We see it across the countryside today. And in fact. Organic row crop farmers are much more likely to be using tillage than conventional ones. They are. Uh, I mean, cover crops. Because what, what can they do? I, you know, I mean, they only can. They have. There are organic pesticides, but there are very few organic approved herbicides. Right. So basically, they're stuck with tillage. Right. And and I visited a farmer on the eastern shore of Maryland. You know, sitting in the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, he uses cover crops, uh, so he'll plant uh, uh, a grass or a legume uh, plant on his farm when he harvests in the fall. 
And right. so, so a cover crop is the thing that you plant to sort of keep something growing and feeding the soil after your main commercial crop exactly. is done until you know the winter and it you know, but it also comes up in the spring again and basically the idea of it is keep something growing there as long as you can to feed the microbiome of the soil exactly and and to protect the soil and to reduce runoff and 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 again Erosion. to help pull carbon from the air and and uh, sequester it in the soil that, that um, and yet you know this farmer um, prior the, the organic farmers would have to most likely till uh, yeah. and plow that cover crop before they could come and replant. This farmer uh, was planting, you know, his crops uh, into the the standing grasses yes. and legumes that were on his farm. Uh, that he could terminate it. And, and then he'll right. come back and spray after he plants. And so the cover crop dies and therefore it allows the, the corn or the soybeans or the wheat that he's planted in that field to grow. And so uh, it's, it's an example of where pesticides are a vital part of a farm system and are helping us adopt new technologies that, that are uh, environmentally very, very significant improvements from I, where we were historically. It, yeah, I, I mean, sort of the idea of a plowed field that's sort of like this romantic image of agriculture, that, that's probably the worst thing ever and our ability to move beyond that is huge. I, I didn't realize I was an environmentalist as a, as a very young child and yet I would chide my father every fall that he didn't need to plow the field because uh, as I you know rode the school bus around the neighborhood you could see the black dirt that was in the ditches uh, because the, the fields would erode in the wintertime with wind and, and water erosion yeah. and again uh, you know such a significant improvement that we've made Again, uh, farmers are have continued to develop and refine their conservation conservation ethic. Uh, right. They have, right. but they also have new tools available to help them be able to deliver on what we know consumers are expecting. No, and it's a story that doesn't get told enough. I know. We want to tell. But it. that's we want to that's tell. What it. we're trying to do, and that's, that's right. part of what we're about here today. And uh, and uh, so. I really appreciate this this chance to, to talk with Chris today and, and hear a little about his his story. Well, thank you, Dr. Savage. Great to have you with us and, and appreciate the work you do in, in sharing the story of, of agriculture. It's a good story.